We are in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be just looking at a few verses, 8 through 10. And we're going through this series talking about spiritual gifts. And I labeled today's lesson, Are You a Continuist, a Cessationist, a Confusedist, or a Combinationist? And if all of those confuse you, then you're right in with the rest of us. Uh, so... What should we think about spiritual gifts? Well, I use those labels because often as soon as this comes up, people will ask you, well, are you a continuist or a cessationist? Now, just in case no one knows what those mean, maybe just weird nerds like me, what do people mean by those terms? All right, we're getting blank, so I'm going to call on Keith. I'm sure he knows. With the continuous, they believe that all of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned within Scripture continue even to today. Uh, a cessationist believes that there were gifts that were specifically given to the apostles in the early church to confirm the authority of their teaching and their preaching. And we believe, or the cessationists would believe, that the, those gifts ceased after the apostolic age, when the confirmation of Scripture was now in place. All right. Now, those can be helpful, but sometimes, as you found, terms are confusing. And rather than illuminating, they can shut down conversations because people mishear what you're saying. Because um, some people would say, well, a cessationist, in there's the word cease, although they think God's not active in the world anymore, or continuous, or anything that happens, okay, well, that must have been God, and not recognizing other things. Um, so we are now going to jump into looking at specific spiritual gifts, but before, before we do that, we're going to lay out three broad, clear, and important foundations, and I think we need these to make sure we're on the same page, and the first is that God always has been is and always will be active in this world. I have a few verses, Jerry, if you would turn to Romans 11:36, Keith, if you turn to Colossians 1:15 through 17. All right, Jerry, if you'd read that for us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All right, so everything is from him would be the word we would use to describe God in that way. He's the... If it's from... Source or the giver. Yeah, or creator. God's the creator of all things. All things are through him. He's continuing to enable that. We'll see this even clearer. And all things are to him. He's the purpose of all things. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Keith, if you'd read that for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here Paul is talking about who Christ is, and he says he is the creator what are some of the things he then adds to make sure we're clear about what Christ created? He just doesn't say he's the creator, and then he adds all these explanations. All right, dimensions and authority. So any person in power is there because God created them. What else does he add? The visible and the invisible. 
Yeah, whether you could see it or not. So what might be some invisible things? The invisible authorities. And what might those invisible authorities be if we gave them names? Not in the specific names, but like generic titles. Okay, spirits, demons, Satan would be a specific one. Yeah, and now Paul is specifically in Colossians 1 is saying this because they're in Colossae, they're thinking, well, yes, we need Jesus, but we also need Jesus plus because if you really want to have power in this life, you need a little more to overcome these spiritual powers. And Christ saying, or Paul's saying, no, no, Christ created them. And then what Tracy said, he's overall rulers and authorities. Um, so we have thrones or dominions, visible, invisible. What else does he say about creation? He sustains it. Yeah. So not only did he create it, he is the one who holds it all together. And then notice in there, numerous times he says, all things were created. Then he explains it. All things were created again. He is before all things, and he is all things held together. You want to be clear, there's no part of this universe that's like, well, that has existed eternally with Jesus, and they've been really dueling it out back and forth, and Jesus wins sometimes, and then he wins sometimes. Jesus created everything. He is over all things. He's the sustainer of all things. That's why... Jesus says that without the will of the Father, not a hair of your head perishes. He's sustaining everything, even the hairs on your head. So if at any moment he stopped sustaining you, you would die. (laughs) You'd lose all your hair, (laughs) whichever the case may be. Now, wherever you fall on the spiritual gift spectrum, this belief alone, just recognizing this, sets us apart radically from so many people in the world. This sets us apart from our atheistic friends who would say, well, there isn't even a God at all. This would set us apart from our deistic friends who would say, well, yes, there's a God. He created the universe, but he was just really smart. He set up these laws perfectly, and now it just kind of goes on on its own. This sets us different from our spiritual friends who think, well, yeah, Jesus is great. You worship God through Jesus. I worship through meditation or crystals or whatever. But yeah, he's one of many beings that are all equal. And our spiritual friends, we say, well, no, Jesus created all over spiritual things. So you might actually be tapping into something. We're not denying that, but it's not the one who made all things. It's not the true and living God. And lastly, this sets us apart from our pantheistic friends who think God's just a part of the universe. No, he created all things. He's not part of the creation as though if I grab this, I'm grabbing part of God or, you know, the creation is just in everything. And so on this level, this is where the term's confusing because the term's continuous, cessationist, because we should all believe that God is still active in the world. Now, these ideas, these other ideas, deism, spiritual ideas, pantheism, these get subtly pushed in our culture. So I have ideas in mind. That's always a bad thing when you have ideas in your mind and you ask a question. So I'm not trying to get you to get my ideas. But that being said, where in our culture, movies, this conversation, books, do these ideas get subtly pushed without maybe using this language? Maybe that's a really vague question. I just need to say what's in my mind. Okay, good. Explain. Uh, you know, and, 
Okay. To a certain degree, like visualize it. Yeah, there's all these gods competing. And you maybe think you're strong until the next movie when they have the bigger, stronger god from some other planet or galaxy who now comes in and now you're fighting them. You want to expand on that? Uh, the Force. The whole idea of Star Wars, it's, it's the Force. God is everything. God is in everything. And you need to tap the power of the chair to really get all of the Force spiritualism. Yeah. There's a couple of them, like, follow your heart, follow your own dreams, follow your own arrow. Kind of leading, like, you are in control of your, your own destiny. Yeah. I mean, if you go to almost any guidance counselor, any person giving you advice for life, almost all counseling outside of the church, they're going to give you tons of advice, and they're never going to mention God. And if you talk to them, they may say, I I believe in God, but they're functionally deist. They're saying, you can understand life, you can go well in life. Just, yeah, you need to recognize there's a higher power, but for the realities of life, you you know, that doesn't really play in. And so functionally, we're very much a deistic society, whether that's, I mean, all those people may go to a church on Sunday morning, but the way they act in the week, they're living as deist. Uh, one of my ones I think of a lot is Lion King. What's the main theme song of Lion King? Circle of Life. And it's in us all. You know, it's this idea, well, all these kids are singing about the circle of life. Well, there is no circle of life. There's one ruler of all. Now, if you said that in a movie, people would be, oh, you're preaching. You shouldn't say that. Well, it's preaching just as much the other way. It's just preaching a pantheistic worldview. But recognizing this immediately sets us apart. But a second thing that we should all believe, broad, clear, important foundation, is that not everything that claims to be from God is from God. I'm going to give some various verses uh, David, would you turn to 1 John 4, 1? John, would you turn to 2 Peter 2, 1? And Josh, would you be willing to read Matthew 7, 21? Now, we looked at when we began, these 1 Corinthians 12. Paul already kind of hinted at this by saying, not every, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. So he's saying, look, don't deny anything that's spiritual just because it's different than you might expect. But then he also said, and... Basically, not everyone who's doing things that are spiritual are from the Lord. So he already kind of set this up. But 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's on Christian television. I should believe it. They're a pastor. They have a title. They have lots of books. They have a degree from a Christian university or seminary. Okay. Test the spirit. (laughs) Test me. Don't just believe everything I'm saying. Don't just believe it because I'm using Scripture. Satan uses Scripture quite well. Look at the way he interacted with Jesus. So you've got to always test the spirits. We can't just go, oh, it's got the right label. It's good. So we always have to test 2 Peter 2.1. John, do you have that one for us? The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So how do they bring in these destructive heresies? Flashing neon lights. I'm the heretic walking in your church. You shouldn't listen to me. No. 
They're good moral people, and I would say often I think they have good intentions. They are not coming in going, you know what? I want to ruin the Christian faith. I want to ruin your life. They believe what they think, but they're wrong. And so we need to test them. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Can you read the next verse too? Sorry. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Yeah. And then it says that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. So these people, they might have the right titles. They might be using the Bible. They may even be able to do things. Cast out demons, prophesy. Well, this has to be from God. Look at what they're doing. But Jesus is going to say, depart from me. Now that's a challenge for us, but right now I'm using it to say, so we, when we're seeing these people, can't then just rubber stamp everything they do. Oh, look, everything's good, so we're going to just accept everything they give us. So we need a standard by which we can test everything by, and we're going to see that that's scripture here in a minute. But that leads to the third thing, and that is that we should recognize Jesus as the final prophet and the unique role of the apostles. Now, last week we kind of talked about Jesus being the final prophet, and we mentioned at the Mount of Olives, the Mount Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured, there with him were the two greatest Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. And then when he was there and he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, what did the Father say? He said, this is my son. Listen to him. He's basically saying he is the final prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 talked about how he is the one God has spoken many times, many ways in the past, but now he has spoken, completed, in his son. And so Christ was the final prophet, as opposed to our Muslim friends who would say, well, we need one more. We need Muhammad to be the final prophet, or Joseph Smith to be the final prophet, or whatever the case may be. But not only was he the final prophet, but then he had apostles. Now, words can be used differently. Apostle generically just means sent one. So I could biblically say, Jerry's an apostle. He is sent by God to serve North Texas, to serve his family, to serve us. He's an apostle. But words also have specific meanings, and in the New Testament, the word apostle is given a very specific meaning. Let me pass out some verses. Can you jostle a baby and read? Okay. <laughs> if you can't, that's fine. Luke 6, 12 through 13. Uh, Shauna, John 16, 13 through 15. Ty, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. We're back over here. Jerry, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. And Christina, Ephesians 2, 20. And so here, Jesus gives the term apostle, not just a generic sense, like we're all apostles, which we can say that. He gives it a specific meaning that only refers to some people. Luke 6, 12 through 13. <laughs> and when the day came, he called his disciples and chose them, and chose them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot who, was, who became a traitor. All right, so here we have 
these 12 men, disciples, and it says whom Jesus called apostles. He specifically designated them with this title. And as many of you know, what happens when Judas killed himself? So now they had 11 apostles. What happened? Yeah, well, why do they need a new one? Yeah, I believe it was representative of the 12 tribes of Israel that they needed a 12th. We see that in Acts 121. And then Paul, he was specifically appointed to be apostle. I'm just going to read this one, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 8. He tells everyone that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. All apostles saw Jesus physically. And then it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. Unlike the others, I was unnatural. I came after Christ died and rose again. And then he appeared to me on the Damascus road. So I have all the same credentials as an apostle, but I was untimely born. But all of this is important because of what Jesus tells them in John 16, 13 through 15. Because the Spirit specifically leads these men. Shauna, do you have John 16, 13 through 15? That's, hey, heretic, read too far. <laughs> now, we always have to ask in Scripture, is this something given to all, or is this given to that specific person? When Luke says, go get my cloak at Troas, was that something we should all do, or is that specific? Well, we can, that's an obvious. That was specific to that person. It wasn't a command for all people at all times. Here, Jesus is in what they call the upper room. He's talking to his disciples, and he tells them that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Now, was that a statement to all believers for all time, or was that a statement specifically to these men? Well, I believe it was to those men specifically. Now, he does guide us into all truth. I'm not denying that in any way. But in a unique way, he made these men his representatives, the word apostle, we said sent, it comes from the Old Testament word, Hebrew word, shalak, and it has the idea of one being deputized or commissioned to carry out the authority of another. Picking on Jerry this morning, so I'll pick on him again. He is the shalak for, and I always blank when I'm trying to think of the town, the town, Iowa Park. The city council has authorized him to do various things in their name. Is that correct? Yeah. So, he wants, they want to buy a fire truck, he buys it. And he says, under the authority, he's their apostle. The apostle of Iowa Park, we have him right here. Because he is sent out. Jesus deputized, he gave authority to his apostles to specifically convey his words. And he promised them, the spirit will guide you. So you are saying my words. That's what he says right there. And we see the disciples Living this out, listen to some of the things they say. They realize we have unique authority, unique rule. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Ty, if you'd read that for us. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now that's a pretty, I mean, if you think about what Paul just said, that's a pretty strong statement. 
If we're having a discussion and I go, well, as long as you agree with what I just said, then you're actually a spiritual person. You'd be like, dude, that guy is so arrogant. <laughs> like, how could he say like, well, I'm actually the authority in this conversation. And if you agree with me, then you're agreeing with God. Like, That's like, you can't say that. You're just, you're just a pastor. You're just a dude like all the other dudes. Well, the Apostle Paul says that because he's an apostle. Not because he had some great wisdom himself, but Jesus uniquely gave these men authority and role. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Again, if I have friends in another church and I write to the church giving them some advice, I don't put at the end of that, and anyone who disagrees, they need to be kicked out of your church. Like, whoa, you're not the bishop, you're not an apostle. Oh, wait, that's right, but they are apostles. They have a unique role and authority. Lastly, Ephesians 2.20, if you could read that for us. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the Okay, so here it's talking about the church being built, and it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus being the cornerstone. Well, once you finish building a building, you're done. The, what the church needs has been built up by Christ, the foundation, the cornerstone, then through the Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, and the apostles. Now, all of that is being said, I'm saying that right now, because right before this, the second thing we said was, we need to test the spirits. We need to recognize that false prophets will come who look just like regular good Christians, and they'll even do miraculous things. So how are we going to test them? What is the standard going to be? Well, it's given to us by Jesus in his words, and by his words that he deputized through his apostles to be given to us. So that's why I cannot say, as they did, and as we've noted several times, well, if you agree with what I'm saying, then you're a spiritual person. I don't have that unique role that ended with the apostles, because though they replaced Matthias or Judas with Matthias, as other disciples died, they didn't replace them. They didn't say, well, look, James was just killed. Hold on, let's have another council. We need to get back to 12. The number just dwindled till they were all dead because they had a unique role for specific time and place. I'm going to read a quote from Tom Schreiner. He writes, Apostolic authority is enshrined in the scriptures, in the canon. The scriptures constitute our sole and final authority, and the teaching of the apostles is preserved in scriptural witness. So, two questions. How should we respond if someone today, you go to their church, and they say, oh, well, that's, and they've referred to the pastor or some other leader outside or tied to their church as an apostle. What should we think or say? Run. <laughs> okay, maybe run. Words mean, how do you mean? Questions. Yeah, that, that's maybe what I would do first. Say, well, what do you mean by apostle? Because I've had some friends like, well, we're all apostles because it just means sin. Okay, yes, you're right. And if that's all you mean by it, but I might ask, don't you think it could be a little confusing Maybe we could be clearer with our words, so ask... You diminish the, the, the role of apostle by calling yourself an apostle. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, what else? What should we think of the people who say, well, I'm a red-letter Bible Christian? Now, well, let's just clarify what this means. What do people mean when they say, I'm a red-letter Bible Christian? Well, All right, John, go ahead. It's like I believe in the gospel of like what Jesus actually said, not the gospel of Paul, per se. Yeah, and, he, and even in that, that Paul has a different gospel, that we can call it the gospel of Paul. Um, so some Bibles, I don't see as much anymore, but some Bibles, as you go through, anytime Jesus spoke, those words are in red. And yet, what is that kind of implicitly saying? And I'm not, not trying to be overly harsh towards those who've done that, but what is that kind of implicitly saying? The rest of the Bible is, yeah. or it could just be guidelines. Yeah, like, we know this is authoritative, but eh, we're kind of uh, not so sure here. But based on everything we just said, what should we think of that? It's not good. <laughs> okay, but why is it not good? Yeah. Well, and also, based on John 16, the whole New Testament should be read. Because they were not saying anything that the Spirit of Christ, so Christ himself, did not inspire them to say. So you can't stop with John. You need to go all the way to the Revelation and just font red. Just copy and, or not copy and paste. Highlight all, go to font, hit red. Because the Spirit of Christ spoke through these men. And so, and you can just, not gently, I'm not saying be harsh. If someone says to say, well, okay, we're going to follow Jesus' words. What about Jesus' words in John 16? When he said, they will also have my words. He said that. Are we going to follow those red words? If we follow those red words, then they lead to making everything else in the New Testament red words. It implies a lack of spiritual maturity. Yeah. Now, all of this is important because it gives us a standard, but it's also important in this conversation because everyone that is Orthodox Christian, whether you're a Pentecostal or the most cold Presbyterian, I love Presbyterians, I went to Presbyterian Church, but I'll pick on them, like my peas, Pentecostal or Presbyterian, they all believe the role of apostle has ceased. But look down, we're in 1 Corinthians 12, though we... I looked at it very much. We are getting there. Um, look down at verses 27 and following, 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about gifts. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts. So my point, one point in all this, is the role and office of apostle was a gift. And that gift has ceased. So on one level, depending how you use these terms, every Christian should be a cessationist. Every Christian should believe, well, actually, the role of apostles has ceased, and that was a gift. So not everything is continuing from the time of the New Testament. Some things died out at a certain stage. Now, we're going to look at the other ones as we go through. But I'm arguing the terms are not always helpful because some things are continuing, some things are stopping. 
So with that long foundation out of the way, we are going to look today at two of these. We're going to look at what should we think of the gift of illumination, broadly utterance of wisdom and knowledge, and what should we think of the gift of faith. This is verse 8 and verses 9. So I'll just read those. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, and we'll go through 10. For to one is given the spirit of utterance of wisdom, and to another utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gift of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So as we jump into this, we have to remember, as we said last week, these are not all the gifts. They are not exhaustive in what they give, but they are highlighting certain gifts. And we're beginning here with utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge. And on each of these, as we go through over the next two weeks, today, next week, I want to look, well, how was this used in the Bible? That's why I have verses. And then, is this still active today? That's what we're going to look at each time. So, biblical usage and then active today. And it's very helpful to remember that words have meaning, and they have meaning within context. Why did Paul start with utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge as a spiritual gift? Well, I think it's tied to what he's already said in this letter, and we're going to spend a little bit of time developing this. So, flip... We can all go here to 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and we're going to look through 2, 13. We won't necessarily read every single verse. So 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to begin in verse 17, because the first gift is the utterance of wisdom. Verse 17, he says, chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now jump down to chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And in my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but notice the beginning of verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. And he goes on to talk about how wisdom comes through the spirit. So hopefully I read enough there and we have enough kind of understanding. What is Paul not saying? Let's just be clear on that first. What is Paul not saying about the gospel? Well, he's not saying it's unwise. So let's just be real clear on that. Nobody you're saying, well, we just said it's not wise. So what does Paul say? What he means it's not wise. I think in terms of the academicians, the academies and the universities today who scoff and look down at scripture as for what it is, they look at it and go, This is this is absurd. This is how can anybody believe this? What's gonna fix poverty, sickness, death, a man coming and dying and rising again? That I mean 
that's, that's not going to I mean, that's foolish. I think he's also telling you how simple the gospel message is, that it's not something that only the college professors can figure out, but the tax collectors and sinners can figure this out and probably figure it out better than the Pharisees ever could. So it doesn't require a mind like Paul, who was a genius. Uh, the simple, the fisherman figured it out before he did. Yeah, that's why he says, chapter 2, verse 6, we do impart wisdom. So he's not at all saying, well, the gospel is really dumb, and it's just for us simpletons. But he's saying, like Jerry just said, it's simple. It is wisdom. It is the full wisdom that we can know, but it's not some deep theoretical idea. All you have to do is submit that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die. He conquered the problem, sin, and rose again. It's a very basic idea, but it's very profound, and it takes a whole massive book to unpack it all, and we still have questions. It is very deep and wise. So, but recognizing that context, hold that kernel in your idea, come planted in 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit imparts the gift of the utterance of wisdom. So what is Paul saying the utterance of wisdom is? The spiritual gift to understand and explain the gospel. It's not like I can now peer into dark, deep riddles because I have the spirit of wisdom in that sense. I think as you understand this, another way people say, sometimes this is just another way of talking about the gift of teaching. So it's tied together. Um, that's why I put these together, wisdom and knowledge. Let's look at that one. What's the context here? We'll flip over to chapter 8. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, they thought they were pretty wise. They were what we would call know-it-alls. 1 Corinthians 8, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It's a little sarcasm by Paul. Yeah, we, we know it all. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I'm going to go to verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, talking about there, he's talking about food offered to idols, and that though they are on one level real because they're exercised by demons, really there's only one Lord in the universe, that's God through Jesus Christ, and that not everyone really knows that, so their conscience is weakened. And then verses 10 through 11, he says, for if you see anyone who, for if anyone sees you, sorry, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Thus, this brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So here's this idea of knowledge. But here, the idea of knowledge is actually more what we would normally refer to as wisdom. <laughs> The ability to go, well, I know this is true, that Jesus is Lord, so there's not actually other demons who are over this, but I'm not going to just use that knowledge anytime and run roughshod over believers who are going to be led into sin. And so there's this utterance of knowledge that I'm not always just going to, well, say this is true, so I can do it. So I think there's this broad meaning of what both of these mean. The Spirit gives us with the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. But I think there's a specific case, we're not going to turn there, We'll just kind of summarize the story. Acts 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Who can give us the 30-second version? They tried to keep their money 
say that they give it, they're giving it all, the, you know, they held on to some of it, and they died. <laughs> here's, I'm keeping some of my money anyway, and here's some of it. Yeah, yeah, good, good summary. So this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, sold some land. And they came with a pretense of, hey, we're giving this all to the church, to the Lord. And yet, they weren't, and they were lying. Now, Paul, Peter, Paul's not there yet. At least not there helping. He's there persecuting. Uh, Peter says, he's very clear, well, wasn't it all yours? The issue is not that they didn't give it all, but the issue is that they lied. They gave this air of spirituality. We give everything to the Lord. And so... He says, have you not lied to the Spirit? Now, how did Peter know that? Was he like Mr. Creeper Apostle, like always watching people? He's down there at the title office. Uh Uh-huh, that's how much they sold it for? Well, no, it was the Spirit of God who gave him this utterance of knowledge and wisdom. And so... There's this broad meaning of what does it mean to have the gift of utterance of knowledge, wisdom. Well, it's the ability to teach. But then at times, there is a specific that people are given insight. At least we see that in the New Testament. Into something that you could not regularly know without the Spirit of God helping you to see that. So all that to now, we ask the question, is that active today? Let me share a couple stories. Uh... Vern Porthris, he's writing about C.H. Spurgeon. He says, During a sermon, Spurgeon pointed to the gallery and said, Young man, the gloves in your pocket are not paid for. And that was indeed true. On another occasion, Spurgeon said, There is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps this shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence, and there was four pence profit on it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Spurgeon also added, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come and see a man that told me all the things I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I have known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I have sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbow because they got a smart hit. (laughs) They have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we had said to one another when we went in the door. Now you might be thinking, I actually used to respect Spurgeon. Now well, he's gone off the deep end. Or you might go, oh, well there's someone who's always in his ministry tried to be faithful to Scripture, and yet he seemed to have these utterances of wisdom and knowledge now this is not direct but i'm sure many of you could recall stories of you're lying in bed and you sit up and your spouse goes what's going on you i don't know i feel like i should pray for my cousin you pray for your cousin and the next day you get a call and you find out your cousin's house is on fire or they had a heart attack and you're like whoa that's weird like what's that all about And we probably all have had similar things. Uh, There's a pastor I respect, and he was telling of, he was counseling a woman. She was about to join a cult. And he was trying to warn her and talk to her and help her understand why this was wrong and why it would be harmful. And he talked to her for a day, and he was not making any headway. They went their separate ways, and they were going to meet the next day. And that night, he was reading from 1 Peter. 
And there in 1 Peter, it talks about people who are led astray to wicked practices with eyes full of adultery. And he was like, I bet she is sleeping with the cult leader. And the next day, he went and asked her, and she was. Now, was that the experience of utterance or not? And the question I would ask about all those things, whether you think I've become a crackpot up here or not, is, (laughs) do we consider them infallible or not? That's the issue I would raise. So let's just imagine I'm that pastor, and I'm, uh, I don't think anyone in our church is named Susie. And I think Susie's sleeping with someone who she shouldn't be. And I feel that God led me. Well, if I then talk to her and she says no, and no one else can prove it, but then I take it with Keith and I keep pushing it. We need to do church discipline. She's, she's sleeping with someone. And you're like, well, how do you know? Well, the Spirit of God's leading me. Well... We got to test the spirits. The pastor I was talking about went and talked to the woman and she confirmed that was true. That's the question. And so when we have our friends who say, well, the spirit led me to do this. I personally am not necessarily like, I just say, well, how do you know? I ask, does it line up with scripture? Does it line up with what the rest of scripture is calling you to? I'll pick on Keith now. If Keith says, you know, I feel led to go do a singles ministry to college girls off in another state by myself. I go, well, uh, that's unwise. You'd be leaving your spouse. That's against scripture. So based on wisdom from scripture and commands of scripture, I am going to clearly say the spirit of God is not leading you to do that. I don't care how you feel because the spirit today does not lead us different than how he Led us through the apostles. You think that's, I mean, you see that so many times in today, like, you know, the Spirit led me to leave my, leave my spouse. Or, there you go. You know. And But for some people, that is infallible. That I, well, I have to do this because I, I just really feel a burden that I got to do this. Well, and that's where I would say, no, that's where we got to go back to the clear foundational principles that. God's word is the authority. We've got to test every spirit. We've got to realize no one who's a false prophet thinks they're a false prophet. And so, even what I'm saying, you've got to check what's going on. Now, the thing is, sometimes, so to use our, we'll use our P labels, our Pentecostals and our Presbyterian friends, is our Pentecostals on something like that would say, the spirit led me. And what are our Presbyterians going to say? They're going to say, man, the sovereignty of God is so amazing. So often we're describing the same phenomenon, but with different terms. And I'd, I want to say, well, let's get past all the terminology and say, does God sometimes still lead people today? I think he does. Does God still say, but you have to test every single one of those by scripture? Yes, he does. So we're, I'm not going to rubber stamp. That's what we were talking about earlier. Anytime someone goes, well, God, you know, Keith, Jeremy, I really think God wants us to start having in the blank at our church. Okay, well, let's pray about it. Let's see if that would be wise for our church to see if it's against scripture. And then we might go, you know what? We're glad God led you to recognize that because we didn't recognize it and the spirit moved through you. That We're not opposed to that, but we are going to test it on scripture. I, I talked a little long. I'm curious y'all's thoughts on all that. Should, what would y'all say if someone came to you and say, I really feel like the spirit's leading me to fill in the blank. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, really, because we have things that we say, like, we pray about this and, you know, have 
asked God to clearly shut doors, take it off the table if this is not, you know, where he is guiding us to make it very clear. But I would say that you have to be, if you're not praying, I mean, and not specifically that, but if you're not steeping whatever that decision that you think you're doing is in prayer, then it would be very easy to say, well, there, here's this open door. And, and so clear, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. And so clearly it's the path I'm supposed to take, but as it might have been you, a pastor once said here, um, sometimes open doors lead to empty hallways. <laughs> oh, and so I would ask him, you know, what's your relationship with Christ like right now? You know, before this whole manifestation thing. So are they are they really really in a tight relationship with the Lord right now, so that they're sensitive to such movements um, or not? I mean, I, I I tend wrongly to be a cold Presbyterian, and I need to be much more open to God's work in this plane. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I, I don't know if it's the words gene, but I'm definitely very skeptical of. Most of the times I hear, I, it's not the people that are steeped in the Bible that are usually saying it. It's usually the people who, when you look at their life, are like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, so so I'm, whenever that comes out, I'm usually very skeptical of it because, I think, mean, you know, I don't regularly hear David, Keith, you, you know, talk like that where as, you know, when I go out in the world, saying that, you know, are usually not steeped in the word or, you know, they're in that spiritual realm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think sometimes people hide behind that because maybe, imagine I'm not married, I'm dating this Susie gal and I actually don't like the marriage, or not marriage, dating, got, I got to keep that. And so I just say, you know, Susie, this, I just really feel like God's leading us to break up. Well, what can Susie say? Well, God's wrong. We actually, we should stay together. I mean, so I, I'm basically using God's name in vain because I don't want to own up and say, Susie, I just, you know, I can't point to anything, but I just don't really want to see us getting married. I'm going to own that. I, don't even, I can't even always, you know, sometimes we can't explain. Just own it. I don't want to stay together. Don't use God's name in vain as a cover for what you want to do. I would add to what you're saying, Shauna, definitely pray. And also, I've sometimes seen people, I've prayed about this a lot, say, well, also ask others in the church that you respect and check scripture. All three need to go together because sometimes people use the, well, we, we have a piece about this and we prayed a long time. Uh, okay, test the spirits. Um, see what's from. All right, one more. And this one's going to be a little shorter and the next week we'll dive into more. He talks about the gift of faith. Well, now this is one that you could take one of two ways. Well, on one level, you can say, as we noted last week, that the Spirit doesn't necessarily just give us one gift. So on one level, every Christian has this. You do not have the Spirit of God unless you have faith in the Son of God. So on one level, every Christian has the gift of faith. But on the other hand, I think he's talking about something a little bit more. Maybe the faith that he will say in chapter 13, verse 2. Faith that can move mountains. Alluding back to Jesus' words. And so... We see kind of this faith that is deeper than maybe some of us have. I'll share one story. Probably many of you have heard of these before. George Mueller lived in England, and he was a man who showed a lot of faith. He set up many orphanages, and 
One day, his biographer writes, the plates and the cups were on the table, but there was nothing on the table but empty dishes. There was no food in the larder, no money to supply the need, and the children were standing waiting for breakfast. Children, you know you must be in time for school, said Mueller. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art about to give us to eat. Then, according to the account, a knock was heard at the door, and the baker stood there. Mr. Mueller, he said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send someone. So I got up at two and baked some fresh bread, and I brought it. Mueller thanked the baker and God for his care. Children, he said, we not only have bread to eat, but the rare treat of fresh bread. Almost immediately, there came a second knock on the door. This time, it was the milkman who announced that his milk cart had broken down outside the orphanage, and that he'd like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. Now about you, don't know about you, I'm probably not the type of person to have my family gather over an empty plate and say, I'm going to thank God for the food that's going to be here. I don't have that type of faith. But God does give some people that type of faith, and we see that worked out. So we've covered a lot of material today. I'd love to hear some final thoughts or comments from you all as we work through here and these spiritual gifts that God gives his church. Well, just one point about the apostles versus us is the apostles didn't have something called the New Testament. They didn't go to First and Second Peter. They went to Peter, but they didn't go to First, Second, Third John. They went to John. Uh, so as what we have was being developed, it was necessary to have these eyewitnesses who were chosen by Jesus to put it all together. And, you know, if this isn't a spiritual gift that we have, you know, to have it written down that we can test it by... Uh, a lot of those first century miracles are not even necessary today. Yeah. Not that there aren't miracles, but uh, those miracles were to establish their authority and prove their authority that uh, we should listen to them. Yeah. All right, well, we'll wrap up there. There's more donuts and coffee. Have some minutes to enjoy some fellowship together. <clears throat>